why is it in all of these biopics about Jewish women or movies about female characters who are like Jews, Mm -hmm. do they have to get non-Jews to play those characters? Is that a thing? Yeah. RBG, Mrs. Maisel, like all of these various things. No, none of them are Jewish. Wow, we are systemically discriminated against. Yeah, <laughs> totes. In Hollywood, too, you'd think. You would think. Hi, I'm Maya Grants. And I'm Rebecca Cohen. And this is The Sauce, the culture and politics podcast where we drink cocktails and ruin the stuff you love. In this episode, we're going to ruin... I mean, are we ruining us? We're not ruining us, but but I think we're ruining your feelings that the Jews are safe <laughs> in America. <laughs> ah! We're talking about anti-Semitism, guys. We feel like we are uniquely positioned. <laughs> I think so. To discuss anti-Semitism. All right, this is a really fun topic. Super Anti-Semitism. Fun. I mean, we talked about fun. we talked about we had a whole Holocaust episode, didn't we? We so did. We talked we about did. related We've been issues. Here before. Yeah, but it's coming back. It's it's a thing. It's a trend. It's in style right now. I know. It's, it's kind of really crazy. hot. Anti-Semitism is really hot right now. Super hot. So we got to get into it and really pull that apart. Okay. Um, before we do, we should tell listeners we haven't posted an episode in some time, but part of that is completely my fault. Maya mm-hmm. was here in New York recently. We recorded an episode. It was great. That, that we had re-recorded, by the I way. Know, it was that a we had already of a previous episode. And both times, what happened, Rebecca? Both times there was a problem with my audio. I fucked up in recording my own audio both times. So we Aww. did the episode twice and we still don't have anything to post. Uh, and that was about the January 6th committee. We had some good analysis. We may circle back to that if it comes back in the news or if we're stuck for a topic in the future. <laughs> and I'm so sorry, listeners. Or if you really demand it. If you're like, I need my January 6th committee analysis and we'll yeah. be like, we got you. Yeah, we got you. We can redo it. But right now we're going to check in with each other. I'm going to find out how Maya is doing and what she's drinking. Well, it's the afternoon and I still have a lot of child management, so I'm drinking tea. Mm. I'm doing okay. It's been a hard few weeks. I had a colonoscopy this week because, listeners, (gasps) if you are 45 and over, you are expected to do this. And uh, I, it, it was not a pleasant experience. And yet, friends, if you are 45 or over, just suck it up. And get it done. You won't have to do it for another 10 years. Just do it, listeners. I don't want you to get cancer. That's very good advice. Yeah, um, just get it done, people. Speaking of cancer. Oh, my God. No, it's this is good news, oh but it is. Look, it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Oh. So I figured I might as well share this little story. Um, also, I kind of just have to get this off my chest because I'm still. But I'm bummed. Oh my God! I'm sorry, that yeah. was That's, terrible. You just put that there. You just put that there for me. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even think of it when I was saying it. Get it off my chest. That's a terrible pun. Um, <laughs> no, but I do want to talk about it. I'm still processing this. 
what I'm talking about is, um, listeners, Maya knows this, but I don't know if I've ever mentioned on the show. My mother, Marcine, uh, had breast cancer. She was diagnosed at 30, so probably developed breast cancer around age 29. She passed away when I was a child. Uh, when I talk about my mom, I'm referring to my second mom, my stepmom, in case anyone was confused about that. Um, because Marcine had breast cancer so young, uh, I have been considered at a very high risk of breast cancer, my sister and I both. And that means uh, screening for breast cancer, starting to get mammograms. Like my sister started at 25. Most women wow. I think start at 45. Yes. Um, 40. Because 40. Is it 40 now? Mm-hmm. Because really it affects women post-menopause far more frequently. Premenopausal women, it's rather unusual, but when your mother had it premenopausally at such a young age, it's a, a very big concern. And we had genetic testing years and years ago for the couple of gene mutations that were known to be associated with a very high risk of breast and ovarian cancer, but we both tested negative. But that doesn't change anything for us because if you're negative, it doesn't mean there's not some other genetic factor. There could be any other number of mutations or combination of genes that caused my mom's cancer that could be passed on. You just don't know. So you just have to continue on this assumption that you're very high risk. And so recently, just this year, my sister and I both independently were talking to doctors separately who advise that we go back for additional genetic testing because there has been so much advancement in the understanding of the human genome and the various mutations that are associated with higher risk of various cancers. So we both did. And the bad news is my sister tested positive for a specific mutation that's associated with a 40 to 50% chance of developing breast cancer. The good news is I was negative for that gene mutation. And my cancer risk specialist doctor that I see said, this means because my sister had it, has it, the mutation, and I don't, my mother, it is almost guaranteed, had that mutation. Therefore, I am not at any higher risk of breast cancer than the general population. Right? Like we found the culprit. I'm still processing this. You know, it's always difficult to talk about it because it's my mom. We lost my mom when we were young. And so that is inextricably associated with our fears around breast cancer and our assessment of our risk and our all of that. But I'm like trying to accept the statement of like, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer at 30, but I am not at high risk. Like, I, it's really hard for me to get my head around this idea, but this is what the doctor says that, you know, I'm going to continue to get annual mammograms and I'm going to continue to talk to this doctor, the risk specialist. But like, I was going to have to get MRIs every year, breast MRIs. And stagger them every six months. That's what my sister is going to do. Mammogram the next, then six more months, then she gets the MRI, which sucks. And I'm sorry that she has to do that, though I'm glad she's doing it. And I'm confident that if something happens, she will catch it early and it will be okay. But I don't have to do that. So it's good. It's good news. It's great news. It's just a lot. And it's I would a like lot. To, it's a lot. I would also like to share. Mm-hmm. Um, cause my father had, uh, prostate cancer this year 
And this is something I did not know as well. I mean, let's just get all the cancer stuff out right now. <laughs> right, right. That in the same way that for women, their mothers having breast cancer creates a direct link or heightened risk. Risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the same for men and their sons and prostate cancer. I would imagine so. So prostate cancer, very, very common, very treatable. Yes. But, you know, if your dad had it, then you should start screening for it younger than you might otherwise. And also, if you have family history of cancers, talk to your doctor about genetic testing. Yes. You can find out a lot of information. You know, the more the more you know, little you know, star going star over thing. the rainbow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The more you know, if, if you have the information, then you can make decisions. And like, it doesn't mean I'm like, there's still a 12% chance of yeah, developing sure. breast cancer. Like 12% of people who have breast cancer. I have no breast cancer in my family and yeah. I get my mammogram Exactly, every as everyone should. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And preventive care is super annoying, but also so much less annoying than cancer treatment would be. That is well said. (laughs) That's our little PSA. On that note, let's talk about (laughs) anti-Semitism. You know, they're related. (laughs) Side note, um, some of these gene mutations uh, are common among Ashkenazic Jews. Yes. And there's generally a higher risk of breast cancer among Ashkenazic Jews. So not totally unrelated. There's like... That's right. It all comes back to the Jews. Because we're... You know why? Because... Because we as Ashkenazi Jews are diseased and genetically inferior. I mean, that's one way of looking at it from certain (laughs) people's point of view. And we're going to get into that. All right, guys, we've been Jews for a long time. (laughs) We've been Jews the whole time we've been doing this podcast. (laughs) So why this? Why now? Yeah, what we're talking about, of course, is the uh, recent, very like high-profile public incidents of just blatant anti-Semitism, just hating on the Jews, as a lot of you probably know. Um, Kanye, who goes now as Gay, is that how you uh-huh. say it? Tweeted uh, that he what was it? He wants to go Deathcon five, Deathcon five, Death, Deathcon three on the Jews. Was it three? I don't. Know. And then in his interview, he was interviewed on Tucker Carlson, and they really went out of their way to take the in, really inflammatory stuff out of the Fox News broadcast of it. But then mm-hmm. all of this additional footage got released, Emerged. and in it, he's Kanye is doing some. Some good old school, I mean, really protocol of the elders of Zion, like yeah. old school anti-Semitism, like, mm-mm-mm. And, and he's like doubling down on it. He's sticking with oh, it. Yeah, and, he's, and, you know, he's, he's big into it. He's definitely, if I understand it correctly, uh, insisting that he's not anti-Semitic and doesn't hate the Jews. He just wants to have a serious, uh, long overdue conversation about why the Jews control all of world finance and entertainment <laughs> and are p- responsible for exploiting everyone. That's all. he wants. He's just asking questions. But here's the thing. There's been some additional cycles of this very recently. I mean, first of all, Elon just fucking bought Twitter and immediately all of the like anti-Semite, you know, racist nutbags have been rejoicing. Yes. Um, and But Donald Trump a couple of weeks ago 
on his whatever social media still will have him was like, yeah, American Jews better straighten up. American Jews better get it together and support me or else. And you're like, ooh. ooh basically the, support me or else, which, yeah. That doesn't actually, it doesn't get the response he thinks it's going to get. <laughs> it's an interesting, yeah. Telling a class of people, you better protect me or else, given our history, didn't, didn't make people want to support him. I, I don't know. I can't figure out who that tweet was actually, or not tweet, message on Truth Social, who it was really aimed at. Like, who's the audience for that? Because no group has ever been convinced to embrace a political figure, a leader, because that leader was like, don't you know how what how much I do for you, you ungrateful SOBs? Like, uh, also, but the, the formation of it, uh, the structural formation in a threat format also. Yeah, the threat not format. Not generally. Like, nice Israel you got there. Shame if yeah, anything yeah, yeah, happened yeah. to it. <laughs> like, that's basically what the message was. But I, I do maintain that that message was not for American Jews. It was for his already followers, among them evangelicals who have this hard on for Israel for their own fucked up reasons, and also just like all the various types of anti-Semites who are Trump followers. I really think it was like, yeah, those fucking ungrateful Jews, right? Am I those right? Those ungrateful liberal, liberal Jews. I mean, and this is something that Rebecca has noticed uh, since Trump, uh, oh, something yeah. you've talked about a lot was- this increase in wildly explicit anti-Semitism. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I first started seeing it like around 2015 and then it exploded in 2016 where every day I was getting really horrifying messages. Oh my God. Messages. Wait a second. I want to add one more thing. Like, because Kanye and Donald Trump suck all the oxygen out of the room as they do, but also Laura Logan. Oh, oh my God. That's right. She was the on- The blood libel stuff. The, yeah. Like, uh, so so Laura Logan was originally a really legit journalist yeah. and she went through a horrible experience being sexually battered by a group of men during Arab Spring in Egypt. I mean it was it was terrible. Yeah. And in her return has gotten increasingly right wing, like batshit crazy. And she actually went on I mean, she ended up getting kicked off OAN. I mean, she went on and was like immigrants are going to come and they're like cockroach eating children baby eating like yeah like it was like a school. nonsensical weird rant but it definitely was like talking about people drinking the blood of children which is a very old school anti-semitic idea of like blood libel no it wasn't oan it was newsmax was it newsmax newsmax either way what's i mean they they had her on they recorded the interview they posted the interview they promoted it and then people were like um excuse me this is blood libel and then they were like well we're never having laura logan on again like right right fine the message got out but the point is yeah this blood libel stuff all of these uh iterations of anti-semitism that we're talking about they have very old roots they go way back and it's it's interesting to see i think you called it the durability uh, of these conspiracy theories because that's what they are and it was funny because there's a documentary that kanye was going to be done on kanye and the producer scrapped it and he said uh 
Kanye is a producer and sampler of music. Last week, he sampled and remixed a classic tune that's charted for over 3,000 years. The lie that Jews are evil and conspire to control the world for their own gain. And and then it continued the sort of like, oh, it was really bad, but kind of great. Oh, no, because he continued the thing where he was like, uh, this song was performed a cappella in the time of the pharaohs. It went acoustic with the Spanish Inquisition and Russia's Pale of Settlement. That's making Hitler it sound took... so cute. <laughs> I know. And Hitler took the song electric. Oh, God. No, I know, you can't do that. It's you bad. cannot it's really do bad. that metaphor. It's really that's not good. Terrible. That's, that's terrible. That's it's terrible. terrible. But what it does refer to is true, that there is this very specific set of fears around Jews, around power. It often goes to baby eating with the blood libel it also goes to certain kind of sexual perversion historically uh which you know kanye was at very much engaging with that and in the right wing when i did the research on the manafort article there's a lot of uh pointing at various porn producers who are jews who are trying to promote interracial porn like Jews are behind the big replacement theory. Like there's all kinds, and these are old ideas. Yes. And I'm not sure if listeners know, maybe we should briefly sort of explain what the blood libel thing is. Yes. To my understanding, it dates back to medieval Europe. Mm -hmm. And it was the false belief that was spread among Gentiles in Europe that the Jews would kill Christian children and use their blood in the ritual foods. Yes. And and this was also there were ideas of like well poisoning mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and host desecration. And when we talk about durability in, in this show that I'm preparing for the plague archives, I found this amazing paper by these two economists who show that the German towns that had the worst plague pogroms in the 1300s, the most violent Jew killing plague pogroms, mm-hmm. also had the worst nazis 600 years later like you could track it it's right. a, it's a one-to-one correspondence yeah it's stuck it's stuck yeah like 600 years across 600 years there was just as much jew hatred and sometimes 600 years later when there hadn't been jews there for 600 years because they killed them all in 1300 so mm-hmm. it was durable whether jews resettled there or not right and i think it's important to note that Europe has this history, particularly Eastern Europe, but all over Europe, Italy. I mean, that's where the word ghetto comes from, is from Italy. There's a long history of Jewish people being segregated into communities uh, that are literally walled off from the larger community, uh, not by their own choice. And there's a long history of these pogroms, these um, sort of riots with the purpose of assaulting and killing Jews. That goes way back. And like you said, during plague times, Jewish communities got probably, I assume, blamed for yes. causing spreading plague. That's the, the well poisoning. That's the well poisoning, yes. Around the same time, crusades. Crusades often started with like, why don't we start at home? Let's kill yeah. all the Jews. You know, uh, they were called Christ killers. There is the idea that Jews are uh, demons, I guess, mm. like this is an old medieval thing. Yeah, with horns, goes way back and also very durable to the extent that when we went to the Holocaust Museum years ago and they had a video about the history of anti-Semitism, they showed medieval paintings of Jews as devils. 
And my Uncle Larry couldn't get over it because he remembered as a child a friend showing him those exact pictures in a book, being like, these are Jews, and then feeling his head for horns. Right. And actually, in one of the correlations uh, in that economic paper, it's like, where were there the worst representations of Jews? Like, what churches had the worst carvings of, like, Jews eating pig shit on the actual stone carvings of the church? Right. Like, those kind of images were very popular. Um Jews were often used as a buffer for the aristocracy. Christianity did not allow them to collect money or collect interest. So they would have the Jews do it for them. And because Jews would communicate with each other in Yiddish or Hebrew across countries, the Jews could communicate and um, facilitate economics across borders. So why is this important? Because it's part of the durability of this idea of the Jews as part of a globalist cabal. Yes. This kind of economic control that, that, you know, spreads out across nations, across languages, because that's literally what the Jews were doing. Now, when they killed, they weren't getting mad at the aristocrats who were actually facilitating getting rich off of this. They were getting mad at the Jews who were doing it as a job. Yes, the Jews were the middlemen. Which they often did because they weren't allowed to have other jobs. Exactly. In in many European countries, Jews could not own land. And land, owning land was wealth. And you also had situations where these aristocrats, the people who were in positions of power, owed money to Jewish moneylenders. So it was in their interest to foster hatred and killing sprees that would conveniently take out those to whom they actually owed money. Now, these are kind of historical oddities. Mm. And yet, when you look at the language around which anti-Semitism still works, Mm -hmm. it's all the same. So when they're like George Soros as this dog whistle towards what they really mean are Jews, it's about this globalist economic control. And the word globalist, that's a dog whistle too. Globalist means Jews and, uh, you know, coastal elites <laughs> means Jews. Also means Jews. Yeah. And Hollywood <laughs> pretty much means Jews. And mainstream media then yeah. also ends up a lot of times meaning Jews. Just to put a cap on it, like thousands of years, hundreds, thousands of years later, you see the exact same ideas continuing to be used and You see the um, conspiracy theory nature of it. It's not just a hatred. These people are low, dirty, diseased. I mean, that's part of it. These people are evil. But it's, it's always this conspiracy. The idea that, yes, they are globally communicating in their secret language and controlling everything and responsible for all of the ills. We see all of this and we go, God, that's creepy that this is here right now. But I want to make really clear that Rebecca and I do not tend towards anti-Semitic alarmism in the United States. We really don't. And I want to make that clear right from jump. Like when people are like, oh, I'm so scared. I'm like, 
to, you know, Don't put your put your pants on. Like yeah. it just... it's part of why I want to talk about it. That's really a big part of why I wanted to talk about this is because I do see people treating it that way. And part of it is alarmism, the exaggerated fears of what this could portend. And part of it is just this like, oh dear, anti-Semitism, bad. And and without any examination of other questions about like, what does this really mean? And, and it makes me a little uncomfortable because yes. I feel like I'm not afraid for the Jews in America. And I don't know how much I should be, but there's not a lot in this discourse about the unique experience of the Jews in America, how it is different from all that shit in Europe we were just talking about, and how it's different from the experience of other oppressed and discriminated groups in the United States. Absolutely. So that's what we're going to get into right now. And I think something we've talked about before, but we're going to talk about it again because it's really <laughs> fucking important is that Jews benefit in this country, at least, from a tremendous amount of white privilege. And I think that actually this performance of anxiety can often not be great in terms of our interdependence and community with other oppressed groups who are experiencing things in a daily way in a much worse way than we are. And I think that when Jews benefit from so much white privilege, it can be really offensive to our allies <laughs> when we make it all about us. Right. So let's get into that a little bit. Yeah. I, I want to talk about Jews and privilege in America. Yes. Specifically. Yes. You reminded me in our discussion prior to recording this, the extent to which Jews did not always have privilege in America because my contention was like Jews are not systematically, systemically discriminated against. We don't have redlining and police brutality and like genocide as was committed against so many indigenous groups. We, we've never experienced that. But yes, we did. <laughs> there was at one time like institutionalized systemic discrimination. And the institutionalized systemic discrimination uh, tended less towards things like police brutality, but it definitely tended towards things like quotas and economic participation, political participation, very much so. And that systematic, systemic discrimination, and here's one thing, because I think a lot of times Jews now have this outsized uh dominance in a lot of elite spaces, mm -hmm. that was wildly contested into the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. At big schools, all of those places at, in, in the higher echelons of business, the CEOs, the executive suite, there was an explicit cap on how high Jews could go. And, and I told her, I'd never told Rebecca this story, but when my husband joined our local tennis club recently, I asked a friend who'd grown up in our neighborhood, uh, when did they start letting Jews in? And he was like, 
the 90s, <laughs> which I was like, wow, in LA, the in LA, 90s, the impressive. 90s. And when I tell other people their story, that story, they're like, oh yeah, like it's not a surprising story to them. Because we grew up in San Diego in a place where I think we felt post-racial as Jews. Yeah, or we felt white as Jews. We felt white. Yeah. And one of the things that I do want to bring up, uh, the Ken Burns documentary, The U.S. and the Holocaust, which I'm going to bring up a couple of times, did a brilliant job reminding us of the very real and concrete history of anti-Semitism in America. Father Coughlin, who would give these anti-Semitic tirades every week, was the most listened to radio guy like in America. And it was weekly. Lindbergh, uh, when people talk about how Henry Ford was an anti-Semite, you think, oh, yeah, he was like a little bit of an anti. No, he was putting out a widely read magazine that was like Protocol of the Elders of Zion, major publication that was going into millions of homes. It was explicit. It was loud. It was scary. And it was socially acceptable. Post-Holocaust, it stopped being as socially acceptable. But up until then, oh, my God, it was for real. Yeah. And it wasn't just like country clubs that wouldn't allow Jews in. The segregation was real. There were neighborhoods where Jews were not allowed to live, you know, hotels, restaurants where Jews could not be patrons. Uh, yeah, like Harvard went through a whole crisis of like, how are we going to stop the Jews from enrolling? Too many are enrolling. Which, by the way, they're having that problem now with the Asians, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, you see a lot of uh, similar conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so yes, these were institutional. And one more thing, just because, you know, San Diego, I mean, that's the famous UCSD origin story. Is that, it? Like the, the famous San Diego La Jolla origin story was that Jews were allowed to start buying homes in La Jolla when Jonas Salk was like, do you want a university here or not? Like there was this big thing because in order to have like a world-class university, they were going to have to have Jewish faculty. And Jews weren't allowed to buy homes in La Jolla. Oh, I never knew that. Yeah. So this was this was recent, is what yeah. I'm trying to say. And it was it was real. But there was also always a tension at the integration of various, you know, what we now think of as white ethnics in America. Mm-hmm. So Italians were originally not considered white. The Irish were originally not considered white. And over time, they got folded into whiteness. And that set up a track for Jews to join whiteness. And as I think you were mentioning a second ago, the Holocaust and the aftermath of that and America's fight against the Nazis and the aftermath of that went a long way toward making anti-Semitism, over, open, overt anti-Semitism, unfashionable at the very least. Like I, I always joke, Jews became white in 1967 because what we consider to be white is a changing idea and who gets to be included in whiteness is a constantly changing idea and it's uh, dependent on, you know, who is allowed into that power structure. Absolutely. And Absolutely. For Jews, which actually this makes Jews a little different from Irish and Italians and other white ethnic groups uh, who immigrated around the same time, you know, late 19th, early 20th century. Um, because Jews weren't, for the most part, landowners in Europe, you know, we came here, my people anyway, came here dispossessed. 
They didn't have any material possessions, but they had assets. They had education. They had these um, middleman skills, economic trade skills that, you know, when you are in a just industrialized economy and newly industrialized economy are very useful. So yeah, when a lot of Eastern European Jews arrived here, they were very quickly able to integrate themselves into the economy and have economic success. And you can't compare that experience to the experience of immigrants who came from somewhere rural and didn't have a skill set that would be so valued in that exact place and time like that. Well, but you also can't compare it to people who were Black Mm -hmm. and people who were Asian. Or any other non-white. Or any other non-white minority or immigrant minority. Mm -hmm. I've been watching, I watched this new Jeremy Lin documentary, 38 at the Garden. And it struck me, it's beautiful. It's only 40 minutes long, and I think everybody should watch it, whether you're a basketball fan or not. I remember Lynn's Sanity, so I was delighted to watch it. But it made clear how the increasing absorption of white ethnics made marking Jews as a visually marked class more difficult, which served to an advantage for Jews. Like Jews could pass in a way that maybe earlier they couldn't, but at a certain point, Jews could pass. And Asian people still cannot pass, and they still experience the vitriol of being a visually marked class who experience Americanness that there's a contingency to it. Right. They are American under contingency. Of course. And like, Black people still suffer that in this country as a visually marked class. And Jews have, for the most part, been able to really slide out of that, which is why I think, to me, it's weird when Jews get so anxious or perform this anxiety. Because I'm like, really, dudes? I agree with that. Uh, But I also think that Jews not being visually marked in a way that is recognizable to Americans, I think it makes Jews seem invisible, which also plays into some of these conspiracy theories. Uh, For example, around 2015, 2016, I don't know if you remember the thing with the three parentheses around people's names. That was because someone programmed, some anti-Semite programmed a plug-in for browsers that would identify all the secret Jews for you. So the names would appear with three parentheses around them so that you could quickly visually see how many Jews are in politics and business and entertainment and and how they've infiltrated and are controlling all of these institutions. Uh, But that was like the whole idea of that is that we're going to reveal, we're going to show you visually this thing that you can't see visually. And it's so insidious because of that. So the insidiousness, this, 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 you can, you or can't you tell there's that. Um, there's also the way that Jews do have outsized influence politically and in terms yes. of power and money because Jews did found Hollywood. <laughs> like, I mean, Jews did not f- exactly found Hollywood, but Jews were instrumental. They were a major part. And it was it was an industry where they built wealth and power. Yes. Uh, very quickly. And in terms of Jews as a as a minority and the kind of representation we have in in uh in media in politics 
uh, I think that it's it's a lot in business. <laughs> yeah, and and Jews have been allowed to succeed institutionally uh, in ways that, as we said, other discriminated groups still often have not. Exactly. So I think that our our shape shifting. Mm-hmm. And and the way that that shape shifting at a certain point in the 60s and 70s and 80s started allowing wide access. Um, but I, I mean, remember, even as as late as the 60s, Catholics were still like a problem. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the, people get really mad at Columbus Day and I'm certainly not about celebrating Columbus Day. But the reason that Columbus Day gets celebrated is because Italians who felt discriminated against were like, we've done great things for this country too. Columbus was an Italian. Like it was an Italian American pride gesture. Right, right, right. And now are Italians worried about being gone? Like, no, of course they're not. Right. I I, I find that interesting too, that you can compare the experience of Irish and Italians and other white ethnic groups immigrating to the United States, you can compare that with Jews, and there's a lot of similarities and getting sort of absorbed into whiteness. But it's almost impossible to imagine someone coming out with like a vitriolic anti-Irish rant, and that meaning anything besides how weird they are, you know, it it inspiring any kind of fear. But discrimination against Irish people was very real. There were plenty of n- n- Irish need not apply signs, you know, no Irish allowed. Like that was a real thing. But that managed to sort of dissipate in the United States. Whereas while on a practical, in a pragmatic real world sense, Jews are doing fine. We're doing great. We're doing great in the United States. Somehow the, these anti-Semitic ideas didn't dissipate or didn't completely lose their power and become nonsense. It's like, no, that's still a thing. Okay, so we can't imagine, you know, the Irish all of a sudden being in, in some kind of danger. Do we think that the Jews are in danger? Like, are we in danger? Do we really... Here in the United States? Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. Now, I'll grant you a few things. Like, there has been a rise in anti-Semitic hate crimes. There have been uh, violent incidents. I mean, we just saw the anniversary of the Tree of Life shooting. And um, it seems like inevitable that if these ideas spread, you're going to see more incidents like that. I mean, it's a good thing that most Jews don't go to synagogue. (laughs) Right, right. Well, that's the thing. The question is... Does, does it affect most people? Am I more afraid of a synagogue shooting than I am of a movie theater shooting or a school shooting? Or like, these are all scary things that are pretty unlikely to happen to any individual person. But that's different from the question of like, are Jews in America going to be okay? Which I right. think we sort of feel like, yeah, they are. It's easy to get caught up in fear, especially because the Holocaust was not that long ago. Yeah. Like the reality of that looms very large. And we've yes. seen these exact same ideas lead to that. And so yes. that's frightening. And we want to be like, never again. And we're going to nip this in the bud. But that is probably, probably not going to happen in the U.S. under any circumstances for a number of reasons. And part of that is that whole thing we talked about in the last segment, the whole history of the Jews in the United States and the position, the current position of the Jews within the United States. Jews do have political and social and economic power. Yes. And 
the other thing is that in the U.S., we have other groups that have already suffered and are already suffering in much more systemic, institutionalized, yes. and deep ways. Yes. Like, it's hard for me to be afraid of concentration camps for Jews when we have concentration camps in this country right now. We have migrants in detention centers that are That's right. effectively concentration camps. That's right. Oh, Jews are going to have to be scared when we go to synagogue. That's not good. That sucks. Has anyone asked Muslims how safe they feel in their places of worship? Right. It's just, we have in the United States this very long and deep history of real genocide. Yes. Like, I I don't want to minimize anti-Semitism. I don't want to say it's okay. And certainly anyone who is subject to a violent attack or has their lives impacted meaningfully by anti-Semitism, that's bad. And when high-profile people espouse anti-Semitic views and spread them, that's very bad. All of that said... There are groups in the United States who are suffering very meaningfully being exploited and being abused, being discriminated against, being blocked from access to power. And it almost, I hate to say this, but it almost feels like a distraction to talk about anti-Semitism. Right, right. And when you're talking about like, yeah, we already have concentration camps here. We already have brutal systemic oppression in terms of contextualizing that historically ken burns's documentary did an amazing job contextualizing how hitler was actually inspired by jim crow and native american genocide like the jewish solution very much was inspired by american innovation and american exceptionalism (laughs) which is the organized like (laughs) governmental destruction of a people yeah america created the model for it in a lot of ways absolutely absolutely and that's what's very brilliant about the documentary is that when when i heard ken burns was doing this documentary about the u.s and the holocaust i thought it was going to be all about like american you know americans really knowing what was going on and not allowing jewish refugees in and it covers that stuff but it is so it so richly connects an entire worldwide uh, notion of things like eugenics and Mm -hmm. mass death and the ways that it was a two-way street. We weren't just like, oh, Hitler over there doing this weird thing. We were feeding into Nazism as much as we were pretending later to resist it. Creating the model for segregation that you can see in the Nuremberg Laws, Mm -hmm. creating the model for rounding people up into reservations. Yep. Correct. Uh, though there is a long history of, uh, you know, the ghetto, I think Jews and yeah. In, in Europe. Yeah. So this is one of the reasons that it makes me somewhat uncomfortable to talk about this flare up of anti-Semitism, of public anti-Semitism. It's because I don't believe that American Jews lives are going to be meaningfully impacted like as a class. As a social class on the whole. Whereas there are so many groups whose lives are continuing every day to be impacted by all of these forms of oppression and discrimination and exploitation in the United States. Yes. And there's another thing that makes me a little uncomfortable about it, Mm. which is that the most prominent figures right now in this conversation, the, the villains of the picture, are Kanye West 
And someone we haven't mentioned, Kyrie Irving. Oof. I mean, we started, listeners, Maya and I started recording this two days ago and had to stop. We didn't have enough time. Now we're coming back. And in the interim, Kyrie Irving just came. It was just like, Kanye, hold my beer. Yeah, but Kyrie Irving also believes that, like, the earth is flat. I mean, he's not very, but it's not. More than doubling down on it, everyone is just pleading with him to to back off his statements and he's and then just like, and then nope. kanye had this interview outside the airport in since we started recording outside the airport at lax where he was like yeah you know the person who uh who first diagnosed me like i'm not going to say what race he's from as a doctor and then he all of a sudden is like i mean he was a Jew. it's like he couldn't stop himself yeah, he's like he was a jewish doctor like i mean he he clearly has um, yeah so it it bothers me a great deal that the two right now most prominent figures who are being excoriated for their anti-Semitism happen to be black men. Yes. And I don't think it's a coincidence that they happen to be black men, and it bothers me a lot. Uh, in Kanye's case, there's a lot of levels to it. Number one, this is a person who is clearly going through a mental and emotional crisis. I am not a psychiatrist, and even if I were, I can't armchair diagnose someone you've never met, and I'm not going to try, but you can see that this person is dealing with some shit, and being one of the richest people in the world and one of the most famous people in the world doesn't create a very healthy situation for dealing with shit. Uh, There's a lot of people around you trying to exploit you, and I feel like we're seeing a lot of that. You never know the inside picture, but Kanye has become good friends with Candace Owens, this conservative commentator who said, she basically said Hitler wasn't so bad. Yeah. Yeah. A while ago. And then got her husband who owns Parlor, which is one of these like Twitter spinoffs to get Kanye to agree to buy it. Yes. So the the layers of exploitation are kind of disturbing. mm. It's disturbing. Yeah, and it is. It is. Like he, he clearly is a man in distress, and that doesn't excuse any of the bad things he's done or said. I don't mean to suggest that in any way, but it just is very uncomfortable to me. But I do think black people are not the problem in this picture. No. And that's no. what is not sitting right with me, that you have everyone pointing their fingers and yelling at and demanding consequences for these black guys, and granted, they are very wealthy, successful black guys. So as individuals, whatever, I'm not going to try to um, create a grid to organize exactly how much power any individual person has in this world. I am just saying it's weird when everyone's yelling at black people about anti-Semitism, when it's like black people are not oppressing the Jews. They never have been. They probably never will be. Though it could be an interesting sci-fi story if you really wanted to be uh, controversial. You could go there. Yeah, you could go (laughs) there. You could go there. No, but these are two different groups who have suffered in different ways and under different circumstances and uh, should ideally be allied together. And it's easy to see where resentment of Jewish people can come in for black people. Like that's 
that's not hard to well, see. Well, and that's that's something where, you know, Adidas dropped him after he got, you know, after all of his really explicit anti-Semitism come out. They, did, they didn't drop him for saying George Floyd wasn't murdered, which is yeah. another conspiracy theory right-wing talking point that I didn't know about until this. I didn't either, that, that particular that, one, that George Floyd died of a fentanyl overdose. And yeah, and he didn't die. It's so disgusting. Um the the anti-blackness that he's been performing wearing white lives matters t-shirts right. participating and all that that seems to be fine he's anti-semitic and he gets dropped by adidas and it can feel like it's reinforcing the stereotypes about jewish power it definitely feeds into this to this idea that the jews are controlling everything <laughs> it's like as soon as you cross this line well now you're in for it yeah but but there are there are like major members of the Arizona Republican Party doing this anti-Semitic stuff, and that's not affecting them. Look at all of the the white evangelicals who are so committed to the future of Israel because they believe that Israel is going to trigger the holy war that's going to bring about the end of days. Right. It's horribly disgusting it's and anti-Semitic. Disgusting. And somehow nobody gets mad at them. Nobody cancels on, them. On fucking Tucker Carlson or whatever Fox News show you want to watch, they're talking about George Soros every day. And there yeah. are Republican yeah. elected officials talking yes. about George Soros uh, yes. funding all the San Francisco DAs who let all the criminals out. Like, oh, these are Jewish conspiracy or theories. Or George Soros is funding all of the activists. Oh, of course. Like, we're all getting a check for going right. to the marches from George Soros. Yes, and I'm going to get into this in a moment, but the idea that Jews fund, like, Black Lives Matter and are somehow behind Black Lives Matter is part of these conspiracy theories. But uh, that the point is here that that many mainstream white pundits and politicians are saying things, maybe not quite, they're not saying they're going to go death con three on Jews or something, but they're saying barely coded things. They're yes. saying very problematic things and there is no consequence. But as soon as Kanye West says something, it's like, no, 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 no. But it's really like been stunning the relative quickness and and completeness of the consequences that he's faced so here's the thing we see anti-blackness combining with anti-semitism uh which is a very old story mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and we see this feeling of not feeling like Jews as a class are going to be rounded up in this country. But then the question is, what is it a metaphor for? Like, it means something. Yeah. It doesn't mean I think anybody's going to make me wear a yellow star in this country, but it means something. So I, I don't, I don't think it's unimportant. Right. You know what I mean? So I feel like that's what we're trying to trace is like, it's not this, so what is it? That's the question. My concern about it has less to do with uh, what's going to happen to the Jewish people in America and more what it portends. I'm concerned about what this means for us as a society, as a culture, <sighs> and as a democracy. I, I actually saw a tweet, and I can't tell you who it was now, 
But the phrase stuck with me. They said anti-Semitism is society's death rattle. To me, and I think there's truth to that, and I want to kind of unpack that. The way in which anti-Semitism is a signal of something that has already gone wrong. Mm. Um, Mm. Years ago, like probably around 2016, I wrote a short thread on Twitter where I called anti-Semitism the last unacceptable prejudice. You know, mm. people say this is the last acceptable acceptable prejudice. Oh, being mean to short men is the last acceptable prejudice, you know. But anti-Semitism is the last unacceptable prejudice in the sense that as much as anti-Semitic ideas are very durable across history and through time, yes. uh, the taboo on anti-Semitism in America has been very durable. And let's face it, part of that is because Jews have cultural and economic power and all of that. Mm-hmm. And also because the Holocaust happened and it was yes. so big and so horrifying and so recent. And itself became this 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 sort of monolith and symbol of the worst of humanity. Exactly. And it still yes. is that. But because of that, it made any hint of anti-Semitism uh, publicly, you know, I know privately, whatever people say what they say, but publicly would receive immediate censure. Right. Right. And to see that sort of weaken, to see that taboo weaken, that doesn't happen until a lot of other things have already gone wrong. That doesn't happen until it's okay to talk about banning Muslims from entering the United States. Yeah. Till it's okay to talk about banning South and Central Americans from entering the United States. Talk about right. separating them from their, you know, children, separating children from families. The process that led up to here involved people shaking off a lot of taboos around racism and xenophobia yes. and various yes. hatreds yes. and prejudices. By the time they get to where they're talking about Jews controlling everything, right? you're too late. It's too late. Yeah. It's like the opposite of the canary in the coal mine. The canary in the coal mine tells you that there's gas before. It's like, this is like the opposite of that. This is the thing that tells you that the, the all the coal miners are dead. <laughs> right. Right. Why that is, is an interesting question, though. I, why anti-Semitism is the thing that, when all is said and done, rears its head to signify a, a sickness well, in your society? Because... We've talked a lot and we've done several episodes about conspiracy theories and cults. Yes. And I think what makes anti-Semitism different than anti-blackness, even anti-Muslimness, is this connection to this idea of a global conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Like that's the that's the thing that's the most durable is not just like anti-Semitism, but the way that Jews represent this thing in yes. society. And we're seeing yeah. this this rise in conspiracy theories connected to Trumpism. Yes. Just plainly, right? Uh, we see the like, QAnon and all this shit. And we also see white nationalism and white nationalists growing in number and, and becoming emboldened ever since 2015, 2016. And a lot of their beliefs are based on conspiracy theories. And there's a way in which 
all conspiracy theories wind up leading back to the Jew conspiracy theory, wind up leading yes. back to anti-Semitism. Yes. Um, one thing I was kind of fascinated by is this recent horrifying attack on uh, Nancy Pelosi's husband. The perpetrator of this Ugh. attack, you know, 12 or 13 years ago, was a Green Party member. And now he's a full-blown QAnon. Q, oh yeah. Hardcore Q. Oh my God. And I think that's really interesting, that sort of like quick pipeline from one end of that to the other that it's sort of like it doesn't matter what conspiracy theory you believe in what you get drawn into it's the nature of conspiracy theories themselves in some way that you you are buying into the idea of some kind of secret cabal that is secretly controlling everything yes and then from there it's not hard to swap out you know who are the global elites that you hate I hate plutocrats. I hate oligarchy. Sure. Well, did you know a lot of these plutocrats are Jewish? <laughs> and it just, it tends to go there. Well, it also tends to go in our increasingly complex world to this need to find the the X that if you solve for will make everything better. Yes. And and what you want to say to a lot of these people is like, oh, that's not going to fix it, my friend. There is no one thing that explains everything. I'm sorry. But people want an explanation. It's not even necessarily the solution. It's the explanation and it's the being in the know. Mm-hmm. And there's a what I think is a distinctly American version of, of the anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, which is the sort of white nationalist version of it. The specific idea that Jews are promoting diversity and inclusion in order to Absolutely. destroy Western civilization. Absolutely. And that's what I was saying earlier about the whole porn thing. Mm-hmm. How like all the interracial porn that's on the web, right? That all of the owners of those companies are Jews. It's very much part of this kind of great replacement theory yes, thing. Yes, yes. Jews want a multicultural, mixed-race society, which if you know any Jews, let me tell you something. They are so worried about disappearing into multiculturalism. These Jews are not right. trying to intermarry. <laughs> right, right. But but the, the conspiracy theory isn't that the Jews are trying to, to do that because the Jews want to retain their own Jewishness because they're um, elitists. But mm-hmm. they also want white America to have to absorb all of these other races and their mm-hmm. ethnicities that mm-hmm. are going to, you know, destroy the purity or whatever of white America. Um, it's just like an interesting sort of twist on the classic mm-hmm. conspiracy theory. It's like Jews are metaphorically poisoning our wells, you know? Yes. <laughs> right? Yes. It's not like the Jews themselves are doing evil things. It's that they are going to manipulate you into accepting these other races who do crime. And they're going to manipulate you into accepting trans people and gay people. And it's going to destroy Absolutely. society. But it's also a way of dealing with the fact that a lot of Jews who have things like money and social and political professional power are still voting for things like Democrats. Yes. Like there yes. has to be an explanation. But why would they do? Is it in their best interest? Right. <laughs> it's like, well, right. you know, that's an interesting question of best interest. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You have a different perception of your interests, too. I think when you have like a history of uh, like the Jews have. But it, it does put Jews uh, maybe at odds with other people who have some of the privileges 
white privilege mm-hmm. that Jews enjoy. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's it's interesting. Absolutely. And um, it's another reason why it, it upsets me so much to see Kanye becomes this big figure representing the current wave of anti-Semitism because it's like, that's exactly uh. what these people want. They want to turn mm-hmm. black people and Jewish people against each other. Absolutely. So for fascists, this is working out great. Yeah. <laughs> their anti-Semitic ideas are getting spread. Yes. And their anti-Semitic ideas are also racist ideas. They're anti-black ideas. They're anti-immigrant yes, they ideas. They're anti-LGBTQ ideas. Absolutely, they are. It's all part of the same conspiracy theory to them. And you see the influence of those white nationalist conspiracy theories, first of all, on QAnon. And then you see that bleeding into mainstream Republican discourse. And again, the problem here isn't, I think, that Jews are in particular danger. The problem is what it represents. Yep. It it represents this situation where people's confirmation bias has gone like so so deeply awry like so badly awry that it has become such an intense and overwhelming force in their minds that they're going to be incapable of accepting reality that's what we're seeing when you see people talking about jewish space lasers or george soros uh, globalist elites it's a mass rejection of the very idea of objective truth. It's a mass rejection of all these institutional sources of knowledge, institutional authority in the sense of like authority on what's true and also like authority, the authority of our democracy, our democratic institutions, yes. Yes. And our government. Yes. They're all getting undermined and it it's all connected. It's all connected, Maya. It's all, it's a, it's a, it's, it's true. It's a theory and it's all, we've discovered the theory of everything. It's true. It's true. Are we conspiracy theorists now? Well, I mean, we've talked about this before, that one of the things I hate the most about this political moment is that I hear myself saying things in ways that I feel like I sound like a crazy person. Yeah. Like there's, it's horrible. It's horrible. It's like they're doing this, but then it ends up being fucking true. And yeah. then you're, like, you're like, it's not a conspiracy really, theory if there's an actual conspiracy. That's a, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Then it's like a conspiracy truth. Right. Um, and I think that's one of the things I find frustrating about living in this moment. I agree. I agree. But also it, it's not really a conspiracy in the sense of, I don't think that there is a cabal of people who like meet and have a plan. I think there are a lot of people who benefit. I guess that's the question, right? Who benefits? I think uh, who benefits is white fundamentalist Christians. Yes. Straight white fundamentalist Christians. They think they benefit. But like who really benefits? Who really benefits from large swaths of the American public rejecting all truth and fact and reality and just embracing a white supremacist, basically anti-Semitic, baby-eating cabal story. Jews are really a red herring for this theory. Yes. Jews are a red herring for the theory, which is, I think, why we are less worried about Jews, about us, about ourselves as Jews. Right. What I'm worried about is whether American society has passed a point of no return. Mm -hmm. What I'm worried about is, does this discourse about Jews (laughs) 
mean herald yeah, that. Does it herald and I feel something? like, I mean, I don't know about you, but I am certainly getting a lot of text messages and emails right now, like all day, every day, uh-huh. like multiple emails from Reverend Warnock's campaign. Oh, like God, I'm getting yeah, yeah, just yeah, yeah, like yeah. pouring through. You see all kinds of people, celebrities, all of a sudden being like, hey, give money to this person. And there's a name I've never seen being put on all those emails, and that's Ken Burns. And after this documentary that he made about U.S. and the Holocaust and the years leading up to it and what it presages, he is now sending a lot of emails in his name for these midterm elections. That's very interesting. Yeah. So, like, have we reached a point of no return? Ken Burns, who just did a documentary about a moment very like this less than 100 years ago, (laughs) he seems to think so. (laughs) Well, if he's trying to get you to vote, he seems to think it's not a point of no return. But maybe he sees it coming soon, as Mm -hmm. many of us Mm -hmm. do. It also reminds me of that Yiddish curse, may live in interesting times. Oh, God. Grandma. I think we do. I think we live in interesting times, I'm sorry to say. Well, friends, did you not realize how Jewish we were and now you can't listen to us anymore? <laughs> or were you worried about us with all of this anti-Semitism? Oh, Wanted yeah. to make sure we were okay. Are you worried about you? Are you Jewish and you think like these ladies are not taking seriously enough the threat to our personal individual lives and liberties? I'm, I'm actually asking. No, I would love to hear some thoughts on that. Yeah. You can contact us at saucepodcast at gmail.com. And of course, we're on all the social medias as at saucepodcast. You can find me at Maya Garantz anywhere you're looking for Maya Garantz's. You can find me, Rebecca, as at Gynostar on all the various platforms. And you can see my comics at gynostar.com. I have posted a total of two new comic strips in like the last month. But hey, it's a start. It's awesome. If you want to join our globalist cabal. Yes, because if you're listening and you listened all this way, you're one of us. You're one of the good ones. Yeah. So uh, you go to patreon.com slash sauce podcast. Mm-hmm. And check out our Patreon membership levels. There's different rewards at different levels, but everybody gets to come to the Sauce Speakeasy, our Discord right. chat. Oh, listeners, it's a dark time, but we feel so grateful for all of you. Exactly. So do reach out. We'd love to hear from you. And adios, amigas. Mm-hmm.